Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Indeed, today is the day. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am your host, Carmen LaBerge. We have a lot to cover uh, in our time together today. I want to make you aware of a few headlines. Merriam-Webster, that is the dictionary. Merriam-Webster has added a non-binary definition for the word they. Uh, Merriam-Webster has updated the dictionary with an additional definition of they. I'm reading this. Uh, there's, it's actually, it's out there across pretty much every media outlet today. Um, Uh, I'm reading it from CNN. Uh, Merriam-Webster has updated its dictionary with an additional definition of they, reflecting the words increased usage as a pronoun, referring to those who understand themselves as neither male nor female, uh, the company announced Monday on Twitter. So the word they now has four definitions uh, in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, including the latest edition, which describes they as, quote, used to refer to a single person whose gender identity is non-binary. You would then, um, I think, have to go and look up uh, gender identity and find out what they meant by that. And you would also then have to go and find out what the definition of non-binary is. And if you're confused by the, by the whole idea that the word they, which is plural in its understanding, would be used to describe a person who is a single person by definition here in Merriam-Webster, and you're confused by that, well, that is the point. Um, we have reached, we have clearly reached the point in the culture where words have uh, very much lost their meaning. Um, and it's going to be increasingly difficult to make sense of nearly anything. Uh, and so if you, um, if you haven't read Alice in Wonderland ra- lately, Lewis Carroll actually talks about this. I mean, he doesn't talk about it expressly, you know, the word they. But, but Lewis Carroll talks about in Alice in Wonderland this um, going down the rabbit hole into a place where literally everything is upside down and words have lost their meaning. And so uh, let's be mindful of that um, as we enter into the conversations of the day. Uh, Here's one more headline for you, and this one is from Union Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian PCUSA-affiliated seminary. Uh, They, on Twitter yesterday, said, Today in chapel, now let's use, let's think about that term for just a moment, what would you assume is happening in chapel, the word chapel expressly used here, uh, what would you assume is happening in chapel at a theological seminary that's associated with a, you know, historically Christian denomination? Well, we're going to assume that the worship of Almighty God and the proclamation of the Word of God is happening in that place. And, you know, it's a seminary, so maybe in chapel they're preparing people for ministry in the world. Here is what Union Seminary tweeted out yesterday. Today in chapel. We confessed to plants. I'm going to repeat that. We confessed to plants. Plants. P-L-A-N-T-S. You are not misunderstanding what I am saying. Uh, Together, it says, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them, so offering prayer, in theory here, to them, 
them, referring here to the plants, uh, who are then described as beings who sustain us, but whose gift we often fail to honor. If you have if you have never understood to this point that there is an absolute uh, exchange going on in this culture where the the truth of God's revealed word and will is being suppressed, Romans one is is just writ large right here in this one tweet from a a, a theoretically Christian seminary in in whose chapel service yesterday people confessed to plants who were uh, regarded as being not not only worthy of receiving prayer but able to do something I guess functionally about it offering to them so we've got we've got confession and we've got offering here we've got the word prayer used um, offering to them. Uh, these beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. Who is being dishonored by this? Whose gift are these people failing to honor? Whose being, whose sustaining being are they failing, feel, failing Excuse me, to recognize and honor and address? That would be Almighty God. The truth about God has been totally exchanged for the worship of God's creation. Up next, Bill English, he and I are going to get into the Word of God. We're going to talk about 1 Samuel 21 and the leadership lesson we can learn from the life of David. We'll be right back. Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Welcome back. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm a little exercised this morning because yes. I actually think that prayer is, uh, is real. I think God is real. I have a relationship with him restored in Jesus Christ. And it makes me slightly crazy to imagine that people who are supposedly preparing for gospel ministry, who are, uh, who are being provided a, a, a seminary education, um, are engaged in such nonsense as to gather together in something called chapel and confess to plants. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to take over because I I don't even quite know what to say. And, and the problem is, is that if you were to go to talk to them, they would seem rational and they would say, Oh, we really weren't praying to plants. We were just, Oh no, 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 no. The picture, the pictures make it perfectly clear. Oh, no, I no. haven't they're, seen the pictures. It's it's worship, dude. It's Is it? it's it, it, yeah. It's it's sitting in a uh, in a yoga uh, yoga style position with the with with the hands turned up and eyes closed, and it's worship, dude. It's it's absolute. It's uh, it, there's an altar. It, it's worship. Okay, I know. So, I'm gonna. I, but you know what? But this this highlights the importance of supporting schools that are true to God's Word and true to the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, to the divinity of Christ, to the incarnation of Christ, and to those core truths that the Scriptures teach. You get away from those things, and you are not going to have Christianity anymore. You'll have a form of it. You'll have Mm -hmm. flavors of it, maybe, right? But you are not going to have Christianity you're just not, not. I, this is clearly not christianity okay yeah so first samuel 21 yes ma'am. um could you just take us there yeah i can this is right Thank after you. um <laughs> you're welcome this is right after uh 
uh, Jonathan and and David have parted ways. I think for the last time. I remember in 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 the previous uh, story, David was to, supposed to show up at a, at a supper or at at, a, at an event, a celebration. He doesn't. Saul gets mad, tries to kill Jonathan. Jonathan now understands that Saul really does want to kill David. So Jonathan and David meet in a field. They they hug. Uh, the Bible says they kiss, they they cry because they know they're not going to see each other anymore. And David is now really fully a man on the run. He is really now trying to get away from Saul, and it, it's it, it's uh, it's a difficult situation. So he goes to Nob, and um, and uh, he uh, and 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 Ahimelech is the priest there, and Ahimelech trembles when he sees him. And I'm not—I've never understood quite why Ahimelech trembles when he sees him there. But he—but Ahimelech asks, "Are you alone? Is there a man with you? Are you going to kill me? What's going on?" And David lies to him, and he says, "The king sent me on a mission." And he says, no one's to know anything about this mission. And as for my men, I've told them to stay away. So what do you have on hand? David's desperate here. He's hungry. He needs to defend himself. And out of the story, he gets uh, bread off the table of the showbread. And he also gets, uh, <laughs> ironically, Goliath's sword. And so the the part of the leadership piece on this that I focused on in my article was the fact that David lied to Ahimelech rather than trusting God. So hopefully that kind of gets us up up to where we're at uh, in uh, the first part of 1 Samuel 21. All right. So just to recall some background here so people can remember where we are. Saul is the king of Israel. Um, David uh, is, at this point, his son-in-law, um, also uh, anointed <clears throat> to be king. Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, recognizes David for who he is, recognizes the call of God on David's life, has committed uh, really everything to to David uh, becoming king. We've got David fleeing from Saul with Jonathan's support. Um, and and then we've got uh, Samuel, the, the country's high priest, um, who's probably just as powerful as the king. Yes. Um, so this is all this is all in the mix here. Would that be fair to say like all of this is in the mix here? David is a a man of war um and very very good at um at that so that might explain the fear of of seeing him rush in um all by himself um so so talk about um well when we come back you got we got to take a break cuz I used up part of our time um ranting I which I for which I apologize but when we come back let's talk about um let's talk about the things that that David did and then let's talk about what it looks like um, as a leader to not go it alone and to align, really align ourselves with with who God is and what he has, uh, you know, what he has for us in himself if we would walk with him. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I am talking with Bill English. We are uh, tilling the soil of leadership lessons we can learn from the life of David. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Bill English, uh, you can check out what we're talking about at BibleandBusiness.com. We are in the midst of an ongoing conversation about the leadership lessons we can learn from the life of David. We have arrived this week at 1 Samuel 21, right? I have to turn back a page. 1 yes, Samuel ma'am. 21. Um, and um, uh, David has lied. I want to talk about I want to talk about that. I want to talk about, we you know, our calling to be people of truth. 
And I want to talk about the danger not only of lying to others, but getting to the place where we've lied to ourselves and and we're just really living in a place of deceit. Yeah, there's a lot of leadership today, uh, as you know, Carmen, that that uh, lives in lies. And we see it all the time in politics. We see it on both sides of the aisle. And we see uh, leaders trying to lie their way to ingratiate themselves with other people. It just seems to me that Christian leadership, leadership bathed in Christianity, is not a leadership that lies. And yet David goes in and he, I think he reverts to himself here, his own his own method, so to so to speak, with Ahimelech, and he lies to the guy and says, "Look, I'm really I'm really working for the king here, so don't don't worry." He doesn't say to him, "Look, the king wants to kill me, and I'm on the run, and boy, can you help me out? And would you pray with me? And and would you help me seek God's face on what I should do next?" No, he doesn't do that. He goes within himself, uh, taps his own power, and lies. And to my way of thinking, he kind of gives up. He forfeits some of the some of the leadership power that God has put into him. Like you rightly said earlier, David is anointed by God to be king. Uh, He is described later as a man after God's own heart. And yet we see him stumbling here by not living in truth. So let's, um, let's maybe pivot. Um, This going it alone. I think that we, I don't know about you. I have a tendency if I'm, if I'm, separated from the people of God, if I have turned away from what I know is absolutely, you know, the path of righteous walking with God. Um, it's just not, it's, it's not a far step, um, from small lies to big lies, to total deceit, to walking in utter darkness. And rationalization is a part of that. I think along the way I can, you know, I can rationalize Hey, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm going to be sta- going to be safe if, in this case, I get out of Israel. Um, it's really a lack of trust in who God is and what God has promised that leads David. You know, that first step off course, and then he just runs in in the wrong direction. Well, once you take that first step, you're you're on that path to pivot to the other path of righteousness and truthfulness. sometimes it takes a lot more energy in admitting that you were wrong than it does just to stay on the course of the lie. Yeah, you know, the the, the going it alone, Carmen, sometimes I find my, not sometimes, many times, I'll I'll confess, I'm going throughout the day and I just forget to pray. Mm. And the reason is because I get so focused on what I'm doing and I get so wrapped up in the problems that I'm trying to solve or, or or the personalities that are involved in these problems. Uh, that I just forget to pray. It's not an excuse. It's an explanation. Um, And, you know, leaders try not to go it alone, right? I mean, you've been in leadership. You've been in leadership a lot. And you know what it's like when sometimes when you go it alone, you get too far out there and then you really make mistakes and they they come back to bite you. And it is not a lot of fun. Had you stayed with the Lord, things would have been a lot better. Well, there's no question about that, right? I mean, and right. that is sort of the hindsight is 2020. Um, you know, maybe part of this conversation and every conversation. What um what should have David done? Like if we think about it that way, like um when when we think about him being truthful and faithful and God honoring, are there ways that we can sort of look at what David did and and say to ourselves, well, what might he have done that would have been faithful and truthful and God-honoring, um, and might have, I mean, you know, it's hard for us to look back at history and say what might have happened, but, you know, there might have been a different outcome. Well, I think, uh, 
I think it could have gone to Ahimelech and said, look, I'm on the run. The king wants to kill me. Would you please help me uh, with the Lord to understand what my next step is? And I don't know if Ahimelech would have helped it or not. I I don't know how political, honestly, Mm -hmm. I don't know how political the priesthood was at that time versus Mm -hmm. how religious it was, right? Right. one of the things that I that I bake into a culture when I'm running a company is this. The truth is never the problem. I, I say that almost every day. And so when a problem crops up, you, a lot of times my staff will hear me say, well, the truth is never the problem. And for David, walking into Ahimelech, he's hungry. He, he does need a sword, by the way. He does need some kind of self-protection. That truth is not the problem. And to admit that to Ahimelech, I think God would have protected him. I really do. I think God may have very well worked in the heart of Ahimelech on the spot uh, to help David forward instead of David having to lie his way through that part. All right. So um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ actually makes reference to this this story. Um, I mean, we can get it in several of the Gospels, but I'll read it from Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going to the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So we've got the Sabbath, we've got them walking in the grain fields, and we've got them now plucking the heads of grain. Obviously, the grain was ripe, and they were, it's like sunflower seeds. You pop it in your mouth, you pop the little grain open, you get a little snack. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Uh, And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? He said to them, so this is now Jesus speaking directly uh, to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. The the lordship of Christ extended over, um, you know, over the rules, mm-hmm. um, you know, as the ruler, I think is instructive here and, and important for us to recognize. Like, if I am walking with Christ, if I am under his lordship, um, my sense of what is right and wrong is going to sometimes come in conflict with what the ruling authorities of my day or my country think is right or wrong. And and, you know, and so I do think there is a challenge for Christians living in a culture where there are some rules and laws that are contrary to what we know to be God's will. Oh, absolutely. And so what what do we do? We follow God's will and we and, and we we make sure that we're being faithful to the Lord in the end, while it may cost us in the short run here in the end, uh, I, I think we'll receive rewards in heaven for having followed the Lord, even if it costs us here on earth. That's exactly right. All right, Bill English, thank you so very much again today. We look forward to talking with you again next week for our next leadership lesson from the life of David. Have a good day. You guys can find more at BibleAndBusiness.com. Hey, Breakpoint is up next. Um, The topic is going to be um, unpacking more of the conversation about suicide related to Jared Wilson. We talked about that some yesterday. If you missed that, go grab the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, so uh, I'm going to have a conversation uh, with Peter Kapsner. He and I have a number of of headlines to work our way through. And um, 
I think I will I will start with this just in terms of our conversation today. Um, it's the subject of confusion. And so when you are confused about something, how do you go about discovering the truth of the matter? How do you how do you find your way out of times of confusion? Do you seek the counsel or the wisdom of others? Do you turn to the word of God? Do you pray? Um do you go it alone and just rely on yourself? What is your what is your approach? When I am confused about something, um, I you know I, I would say I take like a, a multiphasic approach. I I pray certainly and ask God for clarity and wisdom. He is the one who brings order out of chaos, and so I know He's able to do that in my mind as well. I intentionally invite uh, the Lord Jesus Christ to take every thought captive. Um, I know that God wants me to see clearly in order that I might act wisely. And and I also, um, you know, I turn to the counsel of others. Uh, I ask people who are more mature than I am in the faith, um, I ask for their counsel. You know, And so who are your counselors and how do you go about uh, cultivating a cadre of counselors more mature than you? Part of the answer to that question is that as we are actively discipling others in the faith, we also need to be in active discipling relationships. So I need to have a person or people um, who are discipling me, even as I am in turn discipling others. So this is a little uh, way to get the conversation going as we turn to some of the headlines of the day. In just a moment, more Fifty Shades of Truth with Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. In grade school, it starts with kids making up wild stories while keeping their fingers crossed behind their backs. But as time goes on, many teens fall into a deeper pattern of lying, cheating, and intertwining the truth with fiction. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Kids lie for the same reason as adults, to lift themselves up, to get ahead, or to protect themselves and avoid consequences. What they rarely realize is that this short-term solution often leads to long-term problems. So if lying has become a way of life for your team, don't think it'll just go away over time. Confront fibbing while you can. Don't let them get away with bending the truth. Otherwise, you may be dealing with even bigger issues in the years to come. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. I believe we have discovered we are living life upside down. Um, I think that as Christians, we are the upside down people in an inside out world. Uh, Peter Kapsner is back. He and I try to sift and sort through the 50 shades of truth in the culture today in order that Christians can be equipped to walk their faith out into the world um, with clarity. 
um, and with conviction. So, Peter, man, welcome back from Scotland. Ah, it's great to be back, Carmen. And I love that idea of the upside down piece of it, too, because I, I think if we as believers are feeling like we just fit in ever so well with whatever's going on in the culture around us, we may need to rethink what we're thinking and what we're doing related to it. Because, you know, in historic Christianity, it's always been countercultural. It's always been a different kind of way of life. So I love that idea of the upside down. So the the culture is just confused about many things. I, I want to start our conversation with this. The um, uh, the BBC um, is teaching children that there are more than 100 gender identities. Uh, this is the latest in a global trend toward uh, this intentional sowing of confusion, I would say. Uh, and Joan Rivers, I mean Joan Rivers, Joan Collins uh, you know, says that's ludicrous. Uh, she didn't hold back in a conversation that uh, that she had this week um, on air with Piers Morgan. The the you know, what does the Bible say about how God uh, created humanity? He created us. Yeah, it's it's male and female. I mean, and, and when you look at those hmm. words in the in the Genesis account of Genesis two specifically, and you see those words male and female in the Hebrew, it is uh, it's ish and isha. And uh, if you and I had a good hour or two to really dig into that, we would see that there was an incredible intentionality. It wasn't just the idea that the Hebrew people needed to come up with a name or a title. Within those names themselves, Ish and Isha is a, a real powerful reality that there is the distinction between one being and another being that is uh, directly related to being male and female. And and you and I could talk a lot about what makes somebody distinctively female, distinctively male, whether it's physiological, biological, like all of those things. But the Hebrew text is very clear that we're not talking about 100 different genders here. And even Joan Collins, was, she was saying, well, I can get my head around five genders or six, like LGBTQ kind of thing. But the idea that there are hundreds, well, that's, that's way out of bounds. And yet even the idea that there's five or six is out of bounds compared to the scriptural text. So we had a conversation earlier today with Hunter Baker, and one of the things that we talked about was compromise. And, you know, and he said that with his students, one of the things that he uses is an illustration of marriage. And he says the culture might be redefining marriage as many, many things. But inside the church, inside yeah. the, the conversation that we're having as Christians, we are not at liberty to redefine what God has defined. And I think that, that there's an application of that same conversation here. Um, the culture may be very, very confused about gender, and they may imagine there are a hundred or more gender identities. Um, But we as Christians need to not be confused. We need to receive what God has given us in his word as authoritative, and we need to say, you know, this is is how God has designed us, and he has designed us male and female. And if there's confusion about that, then then we go back to God, and we ask for um, him to bring us into conformity with his revealed will and character and design. We don't seek to manipulate uh, God into conforming to our confusion. Well, that's exactly right. And and I think if we look honestly at what's been happening in the last five to maybe even 10 years is that school systems and universities have been far ahead of the curve in having conversations about what constitutes gender, what is male and female, all of the sort of gradients in between as well. While the church uh, and even Christian uh, academies have not really broken open that box. So there's not been a contrasting message, Carmen. And so if you're just sort of the, the normal family out there sending your one, two, three, four kids to school, they are likely to hear in one year, maybe even one or two months, uh, maybe 10 times the amount of gender conversations between teachers, uh, between 
their instructors in school, between their friends, than ever comes up in the church. And so I think we are at a moment in Christian history right now that if I could fast forward 100 years from now and, and see what historians are writing about in terms of what the church was dealing with, this is sort of that fundamental watershed issue. And, and it's, it's, I think it's long past time that we figure out as Christian leaders about how to not just say, hey, we need to listen to what the Bible says about this. We do. But when I go to churches these days and talk about gender and sexuality, there's a deep hunger to want to break through the many messages of confusion that are being portrayed in terms of what's happening in our education system. So if we don't have that countercultural message that is robust and complex and thoughtful and compassionate and help equip people to really think about this differently, we are going to continue to sort of just get swept away by it. Okay, um, we we've got uh, we've got time to talk about paganism. Yes, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yes, <laughs> could you could you just define for us uh, what what is paganism? What what would be pagan? Yeah, you know, I think it's there's a lot of different ways you could define that, but I, but I think what I find really helpful is when you are trusting some other reality, some other being, specifically some other god. In most cases, uh, on behalf of your future, and so. What we see in the Old Testament specifically in terms of the pagan gods is the reason why Israel turns to worship them is not because they suddenly became spiritually foolish. It is because they are, like all of us, I think, Carmen, concerned about our future with with a future that is always uncertain and we don't know what's going to come. The Israelites were worshiping these these Canaan uh, uh, pagan gods because they were seen to be in control of the fertility of the land, the fertility of the livestock, the fertility of families that would then ensure their future. And that that sort of base paganism plays itself out across all generations. We may not be worshiping idols and pagan gods or representations as often anymore, though you sent me an article last night that showed that in a, in a Presbyterian church, there was a pagan idol there. But it's the idea oh, of that's just... going to be our tease into the break. Right. I love that. It's just the idea. And I think we all do it, Carmen. I think we could all take some some stock of ourselves about what do we trust in related to somehow taking care of our future. It's an it's a really important conversation. Uh, what what is uh, in the chancel or up there in the altar area of your church, and how would you feel if an idol, um, you know, from the Zubrik River in western Ukraine, uh, who was worshipped as a fertility god of war and abundance in in the Baltics, uh, were there and were was being revered and had been given center place uh, in your church? That's what's going on in Binghamton, New York at the United Presbyterian Church of Binghamton. And Peter and I are going to talk about that up next. Okay, the scriptures are uh, actually really, really clear um, about idolatry, really clear about false gods, really clear about, uh, you know, the prohibition against setting up idols uh, to worship um, the United Presbyterian Church of Binghamton in New York, so this is a PCUSA church in Binghamton, New York, has hosted this, the Satovid Idol, which depicts a 9th century Slavic deity as part of its uh, September Festival of Lights. Um, Savodiv uh, has lots of alternate names also, which I cannot pronounce. Um, but it's a local Slavic god of war, fertility, and abundance in the Baltic region. Uh, Peter Kapsner is with me this morning, and this is um, this is one of those stories, Peter, where the confusion um, of the culture and the confusion of uh, of 
the conversations of the day just is really in evidence that the spirit of the world is now fully operating in the church. Yeah, it's absolutely true, isn't it? This is uh, unfortunately something that, again, has a pretty long historical pattern associated with it, where we go ahead and sort of try to throw our hat in the ring with whatever God or being or situation that might, uh, as we said before the break, help us on behalf of the future. And so I I think there's a couple things we could say about this. One is it's sort of a, a, a logical out shoot of sort of an increased spiritualism in our country in the sense that I'm going to sort of pick my way forward with whatever God I see fit. And so we see that piece of it. And I think the other piece, Carmen, when we think back to the biblical text and why God has the commands that God has about don't have any other gods before me, don't have graven images, that sort of thing, we need to be really clear in our mind that it's not because God is some sort of insecure God, that he's worried about these other gods and that he can't sort of stand to be around them. He is simply saying, I actually am the one who who has your back into the future. And it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy in a world that is broken, but I will always be there. I will always have your back. Your future is secure. It is the heart of the very gospel that we claim as part of our own, that because the tomb is empty, there is always future, always hope. Even if we die, we live. And so don't trust these other idols. Don't go towards them for a sense of well-being and shalom of the spirit. There's only one God that does that. So to portray a God in an actual church like this, that is not the Trinitarian God that we we serve really does actually diminish the actual God in some substantial ways and kind of just says, well, I'll sort of pick this God for this part of my life and this God for this part of my life. And now we're back to ancient Israel all over again. Okay. So um, in terms of putting our trust and faith and hope in, in idols, I think that technology, um, medical technology, medical advances are um, super longevity. These are some of the idols of our day. Yeah. And when we imagine that, you know, idols are only these kinds of things like this pagan uh, fertility god, um, then I think maybe, Peter, we fail to recognize that there are ways in which we worship fertility idols today. They don't look like this, but they do look like promises of medical technology um, that, you know, are frankly not not the way that God designed it all to work. And so I want to talk about these two stories in conversation with each other in relationship to organ transplants. Yeah. It's really, really sweet story about a nurse who, um, you know, is a, a living donor, obviously, to uh, to a little boy who was diagnosed, uh, discovered to have this this really, really aggressive disease. And um, and so, you know, she shared her liver with him. And then this other conversation about organ transplants where People are intentionally conceiving of children to create what are called sibling saviors for a a child who's already alive who's got a genetic problem. Talk with us about this this movement of of having a baby, conceiving a baby through IVF that's genetically engineered to be a match to an existing child so that you can harvest an organ from the savior sibling in order to prolong or save the life of an existing child. Yeah, I don't, boy, I don't know of something more troubling than this uh, this reality. I know certainly we've seen already, if, if people are thinking this is crazy and just sort of uh, Doctor Who weird science sort of stuff, we've already seen this happen in some places where what's called genetic editing is being done, where you can get a little sense of the, the DNA sequencing of your baby in utero and maybe even do some interventions in utero to help stop something like Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis, some of these devastating diseases. 
And that already has all sorts of moral and ethical kind of conversations and problems with it. And what you just described takes it a step further, where there's kind of this utilitarian dimension that says, I'm going to go ahead and conceive uh, or at least have maybe eight to 10 possible embryos to work with that then when the time is right, uh, I can go ahead and implant them in a mother's womb. But it's an implantation for the for the purpose of actually making sure that you can create almost a spare set of organs for your actual child that you have at that moment. Uh, maybe that could be five, six, seven, eight years old. And now we're creating new children to be harvest donors for uh, existing children. And the whole thing is, I mean, it speaks to what life is about. It speaks to even ideas in this, uh, Carmen, about uh, DNA and being able to resequence DNA. Scientists not too long ago have found that DNA is not a fixed reality that we have, that it actually can be altered and changed. And it, it changes significantly over the course of a lifetime as well. So if we're intervening on this level to create little beings in order to somehow secure the future of existing beings, Boy, I don't even know where to turn with that. that. That's the sort of stuff that was so troubling about Nazi Germany, to tell you the truth, in terms of what Nazi Germany wanted to do with genetic engineering into the future so that they would create sort of the sense of a purified race. And wow, this seems like it has Tower of Babel written all over it to me. So CRISPR technology um, complicates this, but we, we actually had our first savior sibling um, genetically designed IVF baby born in the United States in 1991. Yeah. The, the first the first baby that was uh you know designed to be a savior sibling um this is so this is a new conversation for a lot of people but actually you know in the in the IVF community this is a conversation that's been going on for quite some time all right peter we are almost out of time um but i have one more story that uh i can't resist Uh-oh. um so the highland games were recently held here in bellevue <laughs> tennessee which is the next little town over it's actually where i go to the grocery store and there's a place called percy warner park and one of the sheep that was engaged in the Highland Games, um, she's still missing. She, she's a <laughs> there is a you on the lamb in my neighborhood. And I would like for you to uh, give a shout out to uh, to people to go, you know, find the lost sheep in the spirit of the Savior. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And I can think of nothing better in that article from just a, a visual perspective that it said that a bunch of rednecks from Tennessee were wearing <laughs> Scottish kilts as they ran around after this lost sheep. That was a brilliant picture. I have to say my understanding is, Carmen, you have somebody in your family that actually has put on a kilt and is doing this kind of work. Jonathan LeBurge is fully engaged in uh, in the Highland Games, and uh, he's a he's a Marine. Um, he is a Hulk of a man, and he fits right into the Highland Games. And he, um, yes, has been out looking for Bell, the lost sheep, <laughs> I love in the spirit it. of Jesus. I all right, love that. That's all we got time for today. Hey, Peter's going to cover for me the next couple of days, so you're going to have more Peter Kapsner tomorrow and Friday. Thank you in advance uh, for subbing for me, man. <laughs> love it, Carmen. Have a great weekend. You too. We'll be right back. Okay, there's a reason we got the little cheeseburger song. Apparently today is National Cheeseburger Day, and there's all kinds of cheeseburger deals and freebies today. That's all I have for you. Um, On that particular note, it's Cheeseburger Day. Okay, so for the next couple of days, I am going to be in Houston, Texas, where uh, apparently there's also a flood headed. So pray for me. Um, I'm going to be speaking um, at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church and uh, and sharing with some friends from the Presbytery of Texas in ECO. Um, and uh, and we're going to be talking about the same kinds of things we talk about here every day. So appreciate your prayers as I travel. Um, it's always uh, it's always it's always fun to be with others, but always also hard to be away from home. So those of you who travel for business, I know. 
Uh, you feel my pain in that. All right, visit us online at MyFaithRadio.com. You can get all my latest musings at ReconnectWithCarmen.com. Follow me on social media. On Twitter, I'm at Carmen LaBerge. And on Facebook, I'm at Reconnect with Carmen. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.